Hey, well, big thanks to Layla and Lisa for cluing me in on what the critter is that's been driving me nuts in my house. I've got flying squirrels, and I've caught four so far. No idea what they are. i got to say, they're very cute, but I don't want them in my house. Credit Lisa and Layla from now on. Any zoology questions on this podcast? They're going to be the answers. <laughs> it's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa, Layla, and Laura Johnston. And we got HB6 bribery stuff to talk about through much of this podcast. Sam Randazzo, who was Mike DeWine's former head of the Ohio Utility Commission, finally, finally was indicted in the HB6 bribery scandal on some unexpected charges. What does the big indictment accuse him of doing, Lisa? Yeah, this count has 11 counts of bribery and embezzlement that could mean up to 20 years in prison if Rondazzo is convicted. The 74-year-old Columbus resident surrendered yesterday at Cincinnati Federal Court, where he pled not guilty. He was released on his own recognizance, but he had to surrender his passport, and he faces travel restrictions and random drug tests. So in the indictment, they say that Rondazzo accepted the $4.3 million from First Energy in exchange for favor rulings on energy policy. Um, in 2019, he pushed to dismiss a 2024 rate review case that First Energy believed would reduce its rates. Um, they had a they say he had a key role in getting language in a 2019 state budget amendment that allowed First Energy and other utilities to make excessively significant profits. What really comes across in this indictment is just how much these guys played Mike DeWine. Mike DeWine comes across as a stooge. These guys immediately got together. Hey, this job's coming open. Let's get together and manipulate our way into it. That works. They're communicating in glee about how they got their guy in there. And then he sets to doing everything he can to help them out. So much so that they're warning him that, hey, you look like you work for us there. You know, you've got to work a little more slowly so it's not so obvious that you're doing our bidding. And all the while, Mike DeWine is smiling like howdy doody. He appoints him. He signs HB6. It's it's terrible look for the state government. They just got played for dupes. Yeah, the, and we have a timeline, which is printed in Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and this all started back in December of 2018 when Randazzo texted First Energy executives to inform them that the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio chair was coming open, and then he met with Chuck Jones and Mike Dowling the next day at his condo to hatch a plan and a six-year p- payment plan of that $4.3 million bribe. So I, I honestly thought that it was First Energy, but it sounds like Randazzo was the instigator here. Yeah, it's, but it's all, they played the entire state for stooges to enrich themselves. And really, the shame of this is there's no new evidence here. We've seen all this before. Why was this guy free for the last three years? Think about all the criminals we write about who do far lesser crimes. They do their crime, they get charged, they get adjudicated. It all moves along quickly. But when you're filthy rich on bribes like Sam Randazzo is, you escape justice. He's been living large for three years. Gotta say, he looked like hell in the photo we ran. I Not was, this smiling, yeah. happy guy that we've seen in the past. Right, and I, I was gonna mention that, you know, because at least Larry Householder on his perp walk, he was looking all confident with his orange knit cap and everything, but Randazzo looks, I hate to say it, but he looks guilty, all crestfallen and, you know, sad, yeah. Well, the stress 
of the feds coming after you, even though they leave you alone for three years, the stress, he knows what he did. He knows the day is coming. And I imagine that eats away at you. But, but again, we still have the people who paid the bribes walking free. This, you know, he's the latest to be charged as one of the recipients of the money. But the funders of this thing, the filthy rich executives, former executives of First Energy, have not come to justice. And I don't understand why, because we know what the evidence is. The evidence is completely clear at convicted householder. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk a bit more about a couple of specific charges. He's charged with Travel Act bribery and the indictment mentions embezzlement. First, Laura, what is Travel Act bribery and how is it different from everyday run-of-the-mill bribery? And second, embezzlement usually involves taking money from an employer somehow. So why is he accused of that? Right. So this is among his 11 federal charges. And Travel Act bribery is just what it sounds like. It's committing the crime of bribery in a way that triggers the Travel Act of 1961. That's what makes it a federal crime. And that's when your bribery is connected to interstate commerce. Either you're crossing state lines or you're using the U.S. Postal Service. So the indictment against Rendazzo says that this Travel Act was invoked when they sent $4.3 million in bribe money to a bank account that was controlled by Rondazzo. This is really similar to honest services wire fraud, which we've heard about before. That's another charge against Rondazzo. And when you're charged with that, it's defrauding or helping to defraud others of, quote, honest services. And that has to do with the wire part of the phrase is any the use of any communication. So wire obviously makes you think of like a telegraph and that's old school but it could be a cell phone and we've seen plenty of really incriminating cell phone messages come out in these cases and then when you talk about embezzlement that's the fraudulent appropriation of property by a person and that they they lawfully got this but they're not supposed to keep it. And the indictment says Rondazzo routed bribe money through his consulting business, Sustainability Funding Alliance of Ohio. And he used that business to funnel himself at least a million dollars that was meant for Industrial Energy Users Ohio. That's a consortium of large-scale energy buyers. He represented them in PUCO cases as an attorney, which we know he was the head of the PUCO. He was also at one point an attorney going in front of the PUCO. You know, what's gross about this is that this money was all paid ultimately to get that legislation passed. It was also paid to stop a rate review to reduce mm-hmm. rates mm-hmm. and stick it to the taxpayers. But this was all done to get HB6 passed, one of the most corrupt bills ever to unfairly take money from taxpayers and give it to First Energy. That bill is still on the books. They repealed parts of it. But this legislature has allowed this completely corrupt bill to be the law of Ohio, which just tells everybody who lives here the legislature is bought and paid for. A corrupt bill should not stand. Everybody should vote to repeal that. We are not corrupt. We're not for sale. We're not going to... But they don't. And it, and it stays on the books. It is such a stain on every lawmaker who has not voted to get rid of it. And that includes people like Matt Dolan, who's running for the U.S. Senate. I mean, where has he been? Where is Matt Dolan? He says, I want to be the guy that stands for the people of Ohio. He's in this case. He's one of the ones Randazza went to. What, what did it say about what he did? Basically, that they needed to get that um, to stop, I believe, the rate re- 
he was like the head of a committee that they went to with him. I can get more information on right. that. But okay. yeah, but, correct. Yeah. But he's but he's played the stooge like everybody right. else. And instead of going, my God, I am not going to stand for this. I can't believe they did this to me. Kill that bill. He's silent. And yet he wants your vote for the U.S. Senate. It's amazing. <sighs> Every honest person in leadership in Ohio should be demanding that bill be repealed because it is completely corrupt. I agree with you. And remember, that's the one that gutted clean energy requirements in Ohio. It's very clear that that Ohio legislators don't care at all about clean energy. That's why we consider natural gas green energy in this state. And their priorities have been on passing bills that, you know, look at transgender high school students trying to play sports. That's where they, they go for these big, you know, us against them trying to divide and get their partisan base all riled up. They're not actually spending the time doing what the people of Ohio would be proud of and, and running a clean government. And when we went through this whole householder case, former speaker, uh, in the spring, it, it came out how many different industries were, you know, have dark money groups. And, and they, we even had um, an off the cuff remark was basically like, is this legislation going to go? Well, no, they didn't pay, you know, they didn't, they didn't contribute. And it, it's it's very clear that in Ohio, you want anything done, you pay off the right people. And it's disgusting, but it's what happens when people are constantly running for office. They don't hear it, but there is a rising tide of Ohioans that's fed up. That's why people are so intent on passing this gerrymandering reform in November. And so many people now are screaming for the open primaries we've talked about. These guys don't hear it because they're in their little corrupt bubble where they talk to each other and overrule the will of the voters. They're going to be getting to that in a minute on marijuana. They just don't get the voters of Ohio anymore. They think they do because they're in their bubble. But Ohio doesn't want a corrupt bill on the books. This is gross what happened here. And the more this stuff gets publicized, the more shame it brings on people like Jason Stevens, who won't repeal HB6 because one of those plants is in his backyard, and Matt Huffman, who doesn't do anything that the Ohio residents would need. It's an ugly, ugly case that really has borne out everything that's wrong with how we're governed. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Leila Rendazzo is the sixth person charged in a case that is now more than three years old. What's up with the other five? So this gang consists of former House Speaker Larry Householder and his cronies. Householder was charged, of course, with receiving $60 million in illegal campaign contributions, which he used for personal expenses to help the election of members of the Ohio House, who would also support HB6 and to thwart an attempted repeal of that law. In fact, the money, which mostly came from First Energy, also helped Householder get elected as speaker. He was convicted in March and sentenced in June to 20 years in federal prison. Then we have Matt Borges, who was the Ohio Republican Party chair and a lobbyist. He was also convicted of racketeering at the same trial as Householder, but he only got five years in prison. Prosecutors were able to show that Borges helped pursue these really aggressive legal strategies to subvert the citizen-led referendum to repeal HB6. He hired private investigators to tail people gathering signatures to advance that effort, and he paid a $15,000 bribe to a political operative seeking inside information on their, that repeal campaign. And then we have Jeffrey Longstreth and, and Juan Cespedes, who have yet to be sentenced. These guys both pleaded guilty to racketeering in October 2020. Longstreth worked as Householder's campaign and political strategist. He told jurors 
about how he operated Generation Now. That was the nonprofit that handled campaign cash and worked to recruit candidates who, who would be loyal to Householder so that he could win the speaker's gavel. Longstreth also was with Householder at some of the early meetings with First Energy executives. And then Suspatis was this key middleman between First Energy Solutions and Generation Now. He admitted to coordinating the movement of millions of dollars from First Energy to, to this uh, dark money pack. And finally, we have prominent Columbus lobbyist Neil Clark, who was charged with racketeering as part of, of the scandal. Investigators accused him of working to block the repeal of HB6. Clark denied wrongdoing, but his case never went to trial because he died by suicide in 2021. Yeah, what's missing from that list, of course, is the executives at First Energy who paid the bribes, yeah. who made the decision to spend millions of dollars to buy their legislation and get rich from it. Hopefully, we'll be having a conversation in the not-too-distant right. future where we're I mean, talking about a bigger list of people. It's interesting how long it has taken Longstreth and Suspettus to be sentenced. It's been years since they pled guilty. So, you know, this story says that their cooperation with prosecutors wasn't part of their plea deals necessarily, but clearly they're holding off on sentencing these guys as leverage mm -hmm. for something. So I'm assuming that we will see more uh, come out mm -hmm. of this. What I don't understand is the evidence against Randazzo is so clear. Why didn't he make a deal? I mean, you, when, when they've got you, they get you. The feds are relentless when they've got the evidence. You never win by fighting it. Borges was the best example. He kept swearing, I'm innocent. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. And how many years is he spending in prison now? I don't. I just don't get why we're in. Everybody can see what the evidence is. They've got him cold. They've got his text messages. They've got his face on a Mount Rushmore. I mean, it's so damning. What is wrong with this guy? Is it just the ego? You think hubris. you can win? Hubris. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And also, what you're else are you going to do? Like, <laughs> you got you got to go down swinging, I guess. I don't know. I'll make a deal. Yeah, unless unless there is a deal to be make... made, but maybe they're not they're not going to offer it. And in that case, you just get a fight like a dog. <laughs> no, I think they would have made a deal. I I just it, look. I'm never going to get it. I've you've seen it over and over. Borges was the best example. It just made no sense. They wanted him to take the deal. Mm -hmm. They had him. They were going to convict him, and he just kept fighting and antagonizing them. He would go public and kind of poke mm -hmm. them in the eye, which when they've got you, you don't do that. Yeah. And uh, Brandazzo is in trouble here. He, Like we said, he looked like it's wearing him thin. You're listening to Today in Ohio. In a landslide vote legalizing marijuana, Ohioans approved a new law allowing adults to grow their own starting Friday. In further proof that the Ohio Senate does not represent us, what are senators proposing to do with that provision in the popular law, Lisa? This is, uh, this is an outrageous case of either hubris or just sour grapes because they're going against the will of the people. So senators, uh, Republican senators in Ohio are trying to pass laws before the recreational marijuana law takes effect on Thursday. Don't think they're going to make it. But what they did was they added all these changes to an alcohol regulation bill that was approved back in June. So uh, among the highlights, there's a lot of them. Uh, they want to increase the taxes from 10 to 15 percent. They want to add a 
an additional 15% in gross receipts tax on cultivators. They want to limit THC to 25% maximum for flour and 50% for extracts. That's lower than the current medical weed limits of 35% flour, 70% extracts, and lower than the issue two uh, statute. Eliminate home grow provision. This is the most controversial one. Senator Rob McCauley of Northwest Ohio says, hey, six plants produce one and a half pounds of marijuana. If the plants flower and are harvested at the same time, it would exceed the possession limits of issue two. They also want to decrease the possession limits. The statute calls for 2.5 ounces in most forms and like five tenths of an ounce of extract. But Republicans want to reduce that to one ounce of flour and five grams of extracts and 500 milligrams of THC in things like edibles and tinctures. They want to redirect tax revenues. This is really outrageous. They want to remove the local government fund. They want 45% of the revenues to go to the general fund to spend as they please, ostensibly to pay for regulation of marijuana, 30% to a law enforcement officer training fund, 15% marijuana abuse uh, treatment and prevention fund, and 10% for a safe driver training fund. And I'll stop there. There are many others, but those are the big ones. This is an obscenity of government. I mean, you're, this, we're supposed to have representative government in this country, in this state, and locally. And we know what the voters want. They voted in huge numbers to say, we want this. And these guys are all going against that. Every single person who votes for this has basically stuck their thumb in the eye of the voter and said, I don't care what you think. I know what's better for you than you do. And it's unbelievable that they're doing it. I cannot remember a similar example of legislators deciding the hell with you, voter. I don't care what you say. You're going to do what I tell you to do. They're turning representative government into a dictatorship style government. They're going to tell you what you can do. And Senator Bill DeMora, who's a Democrat from Columbus, he disagrees with most of these changes. He says the voters' intent is nowhere to be found in these changes. He says money should go to local governments and not the general fund. He says the taxes are too high and the THC limits are too low. But yeah, the general fund. So it's a cash grab. They don't like the bill, but they like the money that's going to come from it. But to outlaw people from growing it, that That's clearly ridiculous. was the intent of people who voted. And to come now and say, nope, I, they can't get it done in time. So people can actually start growing this week. If they pass this bill, I guess they'd have to kill the plants. I, it, it's, it, I, it's not really surprising because Matt Huffman's Senate is not democracy. It's been crazy what they've been doing, but it's still unprecedented. I don't think there's ever been a case where the voters did something, made clear what their wishes were, and lawmakers have decided, yeah, we don't care what you think. You're going to do what we tell you and damn well like it. A terrible moment in Ohio government history. Mm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland's black infant mortality rate has remained alarmingly high for years now. Despite all sorts of attention and efforts to reduce it, there's a new report out nationally about infant mortality. Laura, what does it say about Ohio and Cleveland? We're doing really bad, actually. Um, as a whole, Ohio has a D 
and Cleveland has an F grade on the 2023 March of Dimes report card. A third of the cities they looked at, including Columbus, Toledo, and Cincinnati, also had F grades. Only two cities in the whole country, Ramapo, New York, and Irvine, California, earned A grades. I really think we need to figure out what they're doing there because you're right. I feel like we've been talking about this for at least a decade because the rights are abysmal. And what we're talking about is babies who don't make it to their first birthday. And this report card specifically looks at preterm births, which is before 37 weeks. Those are premature babies and they are less likely to live long-term. So low birth weight is a leading cause of infant death between 2019 and 2021, as well as the preterm birth. And actually, this is so disgraceful. Across the country, the likelihood of a woman dying from pregnancy complications or in childbirth has nearly doubled since 2018. Like we think of women dying in childbirth as something Victorian, but it's still happening. And it's really sad that there is such a divide between white and black families. It's it's always been there and we haven't been able to really make it budge very much. Um and and I don't I don't have an answer for you because I know they're paying attention to it. Right. It's not for lack of trying. There has been right. quite a bit of study and money and effort put into this, but really not making a dent in it, 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 they've made a dent overall at times, but not with black infant mortality. It's just it's striking that with all the resources that have poured into it, they're not making a difference. No, the infant mortality rate per 1,000 live births from 2019 to 2021 was 10.5 for black pregnant women and 4.4 for white pregnant women. Obviously, we want that to be zero for all pregnant women. Uh, There are complications. Things happen. But this is outrageous in this day and age. Um, Cuyahoga County scored really high on this maternity vulnerability index, and we're at high risk for poor conditions. Ashtabula is worse than us. Lorraine, Portage, and Medina are in moderate. Lake and Giaga have low scores, so they're doing well. And Medina had the very best with a very low score on their vulnerability index, even though I don't know that there's even a hospital in Medina County at this point that delivers babies. Because think about how many times we've talked about Uh, maternity wards closing. I mean, there are fewer babies being born too. But I mean, Pennsylvania is doing a little bit better than us. They've got a C plus on their uh, report card. So maybe we should go see what they're doing. Michigan has a D plus. Kentucky has an F. West Virginia has an F. So it's not like this area is great for women having children. Well, Chris Renane appears to be in Dubai. So maybe he'll find some tips there (laughs) on how to reduce it. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio. A guy who had his microphone cut off during the public comment portion of a Cleveland City Council meeting has sued as a result. Layla, what is he seeking? This is the case of Chris Martin. He had taken the mic during the public comment period of a city council meeting on September 25th. And he used that opportunity to publicly point out who on city council was receiving support from the council leadership fund. That is a political action committee that's controlled by city council president Blaine Griffin. A lot of muckety-mucks and developers and people seeking to do business with the city around town contribute to that fund basically to suck up to city council, let's be honest. (laughs) But Chris Martin was rattling through the names of council members and how much council leadership fund support they had received when Blaine Griffin stopped him 
and said he was not allowed to impugn the character of council members and that he would cut his microphone if he mentioned any more council members by name. Chris Martin then was like, well, how how am I impugning anyone just by reciting facts? Then he kept going with his list of names and Blaine Griffin cut his mic and told him to leave. So now Case Western Reserve University's First Amendment Clinic is representing him in a lawsuit against Griffin and city council. They filed the suit Monday in federal court, arguing that Griffin trampled Martin's First Amendment rights by silencing his public comments. He's seeking an injunction to prohibit council from using its current public comment rules, which he and his attorneys describe as unconstitutional. The written rules about public comment don't prohibit impugning someone's character. Griffin (laughs) cited, I guess, an unwritten rule in deciding to cut his mic. And Martin's lawsuit says council's public comment policies are invalid under the First Amendment because they're impermissibly vague. They're not supported by valid governmental interests and they unlawfully discriminate based on the speaker's viewpoint. Andy Geronimo, the director of the First Amendment Clinic, said that, you know, government officials can't silence speech simply because it criticizes the government or offends their sensibilities. What is going on with our elected leaders? We should change it from council president to king. (laughs) King Griffin, how dare you impugn my reputation? It's ridiculous what he did and and completely inexcusable. he they have to sit there and listen they created the public comment period if somebody wants to get up and say hey you guys are are doing something bad listen to it this looks terrible he would it seems like blaine would be right at home with the republicans in the state legislature (laughs) i'm gonna tell you how it is and you're gonna like it you know there there are things they could do to 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 ease this up You, you can't allow hate speech and and things like that in these public comment area but drawing that line is really hard many city councils have a public comment period where you're allowed to talk about what's on the agenda you can address the legislation that they're voting on but it's not open mic night at city council i don't know why they didn't do something like that but to when it's when it is open mic night and somebody wants to get up and say hey council you suck they gotta listen to that well <laughs> this guy's got a slam dunk win on this lawsuit and if i were king griffin i'd be doing something quick to try and make this go well, away apparently this guy's lawyers tried to reach a compromise with griffin about council's comment policy before they filed this lawsuit but according to the 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 plaintiff here, Griffin, kept coming back with suggestions that were focused on <laughs> discriminating against any speech that rubbed counsel the wrong way. So they got it handed to them here. They really have this feeling down at council that they're above it all, that they're somehow deserved to be revered, that the institution of council must be respected. And it's government. You're supposed to represent the people. If the people aren't happy, you got to listen to them. An astounding example of poor governing by the council president, and they're going to pay for it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Cleveland follow through on Justin Bibb's latest tactic for getting more police, Layla? Yes, they did. City Council last night approved Bibb's request to lift Cleveland's police hiring cap from age 40 to age 55. They're hoping that this is going to help with recruitment. The police ranks have dropped to... Um, a little under 1,200 officers, which is far below the city's current target of about 1,500. Councilman Mike Polensic, who is council safety chair, raised some concerns about whether older recruits can handle the rigors of police work. But public safety chief Kerry Ch- Howard said, 
that we really shouldn't worry about that. He said the city will still apply its usual vigorous vetting process to weed out candidates. That will include the physical agility test, psychological exam, background check, and social media review. And in fact, he said that there are a lot of benefits to having older recruits. They're often more emotionally intelligent. Their problem-solving skills are better, and they can rationally negotiate. Carrie Howard pointed out also that older officers often can handle high-stress situations with calmness and maturity, which is really useful in de-escalating conflicts and reducing the use of force. And he said he's not looking to put these recruits on the SWAT team or gang gang impact units, but rather for community policing and for helping residents deal with those daily quality of life issues. Is it me or is it kind of odd that Mike Palencic, the longest serving member of council, is making ageist comments? I mean, I could argue that somebody his age can't deal with the rigors of council. You know, you have public comment period where they beat on you, and that's kind of stressful for an old dude. That's it. It's just a silly thing. Age is a number. You know, Ted died and celebrated a, a birthday yesterday. I'm not going to say what it is, but that guy could be a cop tomorrow. I think he, I he's a very fine. That dude I'm sorry. is tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, so so that idea that, oh, because somebody's in their 50s that they can't handle the rigors of it. I've seen some guys in their 50s that could dust the people that are in their 20s entering that class. Right. And they pointed, Carrie Howard pointed out that a lot of folks, they, they uh, retire from the military sometimes as early as 38, and that only gives them a couple years under the current age cap to join the police force. And this will give them more time to do that if they want to. And coming from a military background to policing is sort of a very logical transition for people. So um, so it's this will be interesting. I, I hope so this you does think, help. thinking about a second career now? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really don't envy the work that they have to do. It's, that's, that is a hard job. That's got to be one of the hardest jobs in our society. Interestingly, I thought, you know, council asked about dropping the minimum age from 21 to 18, but Howard didn't like that idea. He said young people's brains aren't fully developed until their mid-20s, so he didn't want to see, you know, 18-year-old kids out there on the front line of policing. Yeah, unless you brought them in in some form of cadet where you start to indoctrinate them into being sane police officers. you I, I think he's right on the money. You don't want to put an 18-year-old out on the street right away because there is there's still a lot of stuff to develop there. Interesting. It'll be, we'll have a more senior police department. I do think it'll be more mature, contrary to what Mike Polensic thinks. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Wednesday talking about some more news.